Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. I'm your host and Bible guide, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Revelation chapter 18. The language for this section is drawn almost entirely from two places in the Old Testament. There is first the doom song of Tyre, found in Ezekiel 26 to 28. And then there's also the doom song of Babylon, found in Isaiah 13. Now, Tyre was a world commercial power, and the doom song of Tyre is a wonderful bit of prophetic poetry. It revolves around the symbol of a sinking ship. This is the doom song of the good ship Tyre. She is described as a magnificent vessel, the product of the finest engineering, and the carrier of the world's finest goods. And yet, she is ultimately sunk by a strong east wind. A storm shatters her sense of invulnerability and lays her low. She becomes barren, poor, and a place only for the drying of fishing nets. She has been utterly thrown down. Now, the doom song of Babylon is also fascinating. There, the prophet is warning the people of God against becoming allied with the Babylonians, thinking that the strength of Babylon might save them from other enemies. The prophet says, if you hitch your wagons to Babylon, you will share her doom. Therefore, come out of her, my people. Now, in a parallel passage in Jeremiah 51, 63, the prophet Jeremiah actually ties his doom of Babylon oracle to a rock and throws it into the Euphrates River in order to make a point, a point that is picked up in Revelation 18. So these colors have been lifted right off Old Testament canvases in order to speak to us afresh in this chapter. So hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. And the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back, as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. Verses 1 to 6. Now, here's another example of what theologians and Bible scholars refer to as double causality. We saw in the last chapter that it was going to be the heads of the beast that threw down the whore of Babylon. We, we talked about how Revelation 17 seems to be telling us to anticipate that a future manifestation of the beast, that is, 
persecuting empire or persecuting government will hate the whore and will cause her to be thrown down. And so we look for a future persecuting political governmental power that nonetheless despises the corrosive and seductive culture of the whore. The heads of the beast will unwittingly do God's bidding as God uses one of our enemies to destroy the other. That's double causality. On one level, it is the beast that destroys the whore. But on another level, a more important level, it is God. And so we see here, the news of this judgment, the announcement of this doom comes from heaven by means of a mighty angel. And all the plagues that fall on her are characterized as the plagues of God. Now, before these plagues fall, a warning is given. Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. Now, remember that many of the plagues we've been talking about fall only on the people of the beast, just like in the Exodus. In the Exodus, many of the plagues did not fall on God's people, but only on the people of Egypt. That was part of the miracle. It was a miracle that made a distinction. And so will this be. And so you want the distinction to be very clear. You want it to be very clear that you are not of Babylon, you are of Jerusalem, so come out from her. Separate yourself from this culture of seduction and from all of her abominations, lest you share in her sins and share in her plagues. Verse 7 goes on to say, As she glorified herself, she made much of herself, and she lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. Now, if you have your Bible open, you might notice that these words, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see, are indicated in some way as a quotation. They're a quotation from Isaiah 47. The text that we mentioned yesterday is providing the Old Testament background for this entire sequence. Here again, as in the Old Testament, Mistress Babylon is arrogant and self-assured. She lived luxuriously. She over-consumed. She thought herself worthy of the lion's share of the earth's resources. The Jewish rabbis used to say of Rome that they ate and consumed six-sevenths of the wealth that God had provided for the earth. They would say that God provided seven measures of wealth, and the Romans ate six measures. And the final measure was divided among the rest of the people of the world. It is characteristic of every dominant culture that it overconsumes because it glorifies itself and its people think themselves worthy of luxury. When Julius Caesar conquered Gaul, modern-day France, it is said that he killed 20% of its population through war and displacement. He then impoverished them by sending all the produce of the land down the Roman roads and into the Roman markets. Rome's appetite for luxury was insatiable. She consumed people and lands because she thought herself a god. I sit as a queen and will not see sorrow. Now, the Greek there is fascinating. She literally says, I should not know 
suffering. The verb is in the subjunctive, meaning she says, she does not expect to experience suffering. Bad things won't happen to me, she says. My friends, when when you hear so-called Christians today in North America saying that Christians should never get sick, Christians should always be happy and healthy and wealthy, when you hear so-called Christians arguing with the plain meaning of Scripture about suffering and saying, this should not happen to me, you are hearing people speak with the mouth of the whore and in the spirit of the harlot. A person doesn't say that by the Holy Spirit who wrote the Bible, which says... Count it all joy, my brethren, when you face trials of many kind. And which says, to this you were called. And which says, we also glory in tribulation. A person could only say that if they were filled with the spirit of whoredom. The whore thinks she is owed only good things, even if they come at the expense of others. North Americans represent 5% of the world's population but consume more than 25% of its resources. What spirit, then, animates our culture? Verse 8 says, For this reason her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she'll be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. Now that's interesting. These plagues come from God, right? They're judgment. And yet, if we're putting this chapter together with what we saw in the last chapter, then they also come via the agency of a persecuting power that hates whorish culture. Verse 9. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. Now the kings in verse 9 are identified as those who committed immorality and lived in luxury with her, meaning they are not the kings who hate her and who throw her down, as per chapter 17. These are a different kind of ruler. These are the merchant princes of the earth. These are the kings of capitalism. They're the ones who mourn and weep over the sudden destruction of the whore. They mourn the collapse of the world culture from which they made their wealth and in which they lived in luxury. In one hour, their house of cards has fallen. Verse 11, And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots and slaves. That is, human souls. The kings of capitalism become fabulously wealthy by trading all the goods of the world. They even dealt in the bodies and souls of humanity. They treated people like commodities and souls like chips on the table. Verse 14 says, The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, and all your delicacies and splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The word translated as delicacies 
there in the ESV. I think it's as, as riches in some of the other translations. It's the Greek word lepara, which literally means fat. It's the word from which we get our English word lipids. These people loved to live fat. They gave themselves the very best, and now it's gone, and it's never coming back. Verse 15 says, The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. For in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste, and all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors, and all whose trade is on the sea stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning, what city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour, she's been laid waste. The merchant princes wail and mourn the death of their golden goose. Now, while scholars generally agree that the time references in Revelation should be understood symbolically rather than in a woodenly literalistic way, it ought to be pretty clear here that a single hour is meant to symbolize a rapid and catastrophic collapse. This is not slow decline over generations. This is some kind of geopolitical disaster. It is swift, it is unexpected, and it is providential. Verse 20 goes on to say, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. So let me just pause here for a second. Because if you're feeling worried, if you're feeling anxious about all this, if the collapse of whorish culture actually sounds more like bad news to you than good news, it may mean that you have been assimilated. Come out from her, my people, lest you share in her sins and share in her plagues. In heaven, the saints and apostles and prophets think that this is really good news. They see in this that God has used one of our enemies to destroy another of our enemies, and it is cause for praise. Verse 21, Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon the great city be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. I mentioned already that this symbolism is borrowed from Jeremiah. Jeremiah the prophet tied his doom song of Babylon to a stone and threw it into the river. So here, only bigger. It's not a stone now. It's a millstone. And it's not a prophet. It's a mighty angel. And it's not a river. It's the sea. This is a symbolic way of saying that the past fall of Babylon is a figure of the future and final fall of Babylon. The future will follow the pattern of the past, only bigger. Verse 22 says, And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters, will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill, 
will be heard in you no more, and the light of a lamp will shine in you no more, and the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery, and in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on earth. Now we have time for just a couple of comments here. The, the term a craftsman, as in a craftsman of any craft in verse 22, translates the Greek word tenites, from which we get our English word technician. I mean, th- this could equally be translated no technician of technology, followed by no light of illumination. Right? It's not a huge leap to imagine that this is describing the complete collapse of the power grid. One other interesting note is in regards to verse 23. The Greek word for sorcery there is pharmakeia, from which we get our English word pharmacy. It means medicine, drugs, sorcery, and witchcraft. When Babylon is thrown down, however destabilizing that will be, it will also bring an end to many things that have done immeasurable harm to God's people. Things by which the nations of the earth were deceived. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to Into the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those over the website at www.intotheword.ca. You can also check us out on Facebook, and I hope you do. We have a growing community of Bible readers over there, and we post daily encouragements and conversation starters. Hope to see you there. And hope to see you again tomorrow, right here for another episode of Into the Word. <music>